Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. The Jacobean era helped shape the exploration and colonization of the North American continent. By the way, the word, spelled E-R-A, is pronounced ERA in Canada and the UK, while its pronunciation is ERA in the United States. We enter a new century alongside a new English monarch with a deep dive into a fascinating epoch that witnessed the unification of England and Scotland under one ruler, resulting in an important shift of order for both nations, shaping their existence to the present day. Another development of crucial significance during this period was the establishment of the first British colonies on the North American continent at Jamestown, Virginia in 1607, in Newfoundland in 1610, and at Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts in 1620, which laid the foundation for future British settlement and the eventual formation of both Canada and the United States of America. Along the way, we share time with fascinating Jacobean characters and travel alongside great New World transatlantic explorers adventurers and colonizers who crossed the pond, while learning of important pivotal events that influenced the settlement and subsequent development of the Western Hemisphere between 1603 and 1625. And now, let's delve into the life and times of the British monarch that gave his name to the Jacobean era, King James I. James VI of Scotland was proclaimed King of England within eight hours of Elizabeth's death, and his first Parliament proclaimed that he was, by inherent birthright and undoubted and lawful succession, the successor to the imperial crown of England and Scotland. It sounded good because it retained the monarchy's constitutional position, but it was a dangerous doctrine since it implied that James's title to the throne was above and beyond the law, as of course James himself, as the author of The True Law of Free Monarchies, firmly believed. In April 1603, James arrived in London in triumph, the undoubted heir of his great-great-grandfather, Henry VII. Henry VII had commissioned the imperial crown as the symbol of the recovery of the monarchy for the degradation of the Wars of the Roses. Now James, the first ruler of all Britain, would endow it with a larger significance still. James's aim was to be Rex Pacificus, the peacemaker king. He had ensured the smooth passage of the crown without bloodshed. He would reconcile Catholic and Protestant, thus re-establishing Christian unity at home and abroad. He would end England's debilitating war with Spain. And above all, he would terminate the ancient feud between England and Scotland and fuse instead the two warring kingdoms into a new, greater, united realm of Britain. It was an enormously ambitious programme, and to realise it, James, in a strikingly modern gesture, summoned three major conferences on peace, religion and union with Scotland. The peace conference and ensuing treaty at Somerset House were commemorated in a notable painting, which shows the English and Spanish delegates confronting each other across a richly carpeted table. Through its successful outcome, 
James ended the Twenty-Year War with Catholic Spain. It was an auspicious start for James, the international peacemaker. But the result, paradoxically, was trouble at home. On the one hand, the Somerset House Treaty meant that the hotter Protestants were shocked to discover that England, now at peace with the leading Catholic power, would no longer be the champion of their fellow Protestants in Europe. And, on the other hand, the more extreme Catholics were equally dismayed to find out that Spain had not exacted toleration for Catholics as a price of the peace. Abandoned by their allies abroad, such Catholics turned, in desperation, to direct action at home. At the beginning of November 1605, James was shown a tip-off letter warning that the political establishment of England would receive a terrible blow in the Parliament he was due to open on the 5th of November. James immediately appreciated that the wording of the letter pointed to an explosion. But, in order to catch the plotters red-handed, it was decided not to search the vaults under the Parliament chamber until the night of the 4th. At 11pm, the search party entered and found a man standing guard over a pile of firewood, 35 barrels of gunpowder, and with a fuse in his pocket. His name was Guy Fawkes. If the gunpowder had exploded as planned, it would have been the ultimate terrorist bombing, wiping out most of the British royal family and the entire English political establishment. Nevertheless, the immediate political consequences were small. To James's credit, there was no widespread persecution of Catholics in England, and the peace with Spain held. But, in the longer term, the plot played an important part in the development of the anti-Catholic myth in England. At this early stage of the 17th century, the reality was that English Catholicism was a beleaguered minority faith. But, in the fevered imagination of the hotter sort of Protestants, it became instead the fifth column of a vast international politico-religious conspiracy masterminded by the Pope in Rome and aiming not only at the conversion of England but at the subversion of English Protestantism and English freedoms by the foulest possible means. And so, at the second of James's great conferences held at Hampton Court in January 1604 to determine the nature of the religious settlement under James, those hot Protestants, known pejoratively as Puritans, demanded that the English church be purged of what they regarded as its damnable popish elements, which had been retained by Elizabeth. But they reckoned without the seductive powers of the English monarchy and the English royal supremacy. In Scotland, James VI had sat in the body of the church as the preacher bore down upon him, calling the king, but God's silly vassal. Another time, the minister of St Andrews said that all kings are devil's children. He was lectured that, as far as the General Assembly of the Protestant Kirk went, he was not a king or master, but a member equal with all the rest. But in England, it was the same man, now known as King James I, who sat on high in the chapel royal, enthroned in a magnificent royal pew, whilst the preacher, under correction, went about his humbler task far below. It was the most graphic possible illustration of the power of the royal supremacy, which James was determined to keep in England and, if he could, extend to Scotland. 
instead of making the Church of England more like the Scottish Kirk, therefore, as the Puritans had hoped, James used the Hampton Court Conference to proclaim that he was satisfied with the Elizabethan religious settlement and was resolved to keep it as it stood. Beaten by Buchanan and hectored by zealous Presbyterians, James associated Puritanism with disloyalty to monarchy. He would not, any more than Elizabeth, soften Whitgift's hard line in enforcing ceremonies and vestments, which the Puritans thought scandalously Catholic, and, above all, he would allow not an inch of movement by bishops away from the English government of the church towards a role for assemblies of presbyteries or clergy as in Scotland. No bishop, no king, he summed up memorably. He even managed to subvert the Puritans' demands for a new translation of the Bible. James eagerly agreed, since he detested the so-called Geneva version of the Bible, which was then used by Presbyterians in Scotland and Puritans in England because of its marginal notes, which show typically hot Protestant disrespect for kings and queens. The King James Version of the Bible, on the other hand, as the large and learned team of translators explained in the preface, was to tread soberly the middle way between Popish persons, on one hand, and self-conceited brethren, that is, the Puritans, on the other. Thus, this monument of the English language was born out of a long-dead politico-theological dispute, and it is the only classic to have been written by committee. Nevertheless, the King James Bible became the book which, more than any other, shaped the English language and formed the English mind. Next time, we continue our story with more excerpts from the audiobook Monarchy from the Middle Ages to Modernity by David Starkey, available when using the link in this episode's show notes. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride.